Well, good morning, Hallows Church. My name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here. It's good to see you this morning, as always. Uh, we're going to be camped out today in Galatians chapter 6. If you have your Bible with you and you'd like to track along uh, with me as we go, please uh, head over in that direction. Now, last week, Pastor Andrew, um, he expressed our hope and our prayer that, that here at the Hallows Church, we would see lives flourishing in gospel-saturated relationships, and he unpacked some of what that looks like in light of Paul's parting remarks in his letter to the churches at Philippi. We heard how God's grace towards us in the gospel creates a very unique identity uh, for us as family, and it creates among us a hospitable community who extend grace generously towards one another because of God's grace at work in our own hearts and in our own lives. And I'd like to continue today on this same theme of gospel uh, relationships and what it looks like to be a community of faith who are trusting in the realities and the promises of the gospel together. And so I want to continue today on that same trajectory as we explore Paul's thinking and Paul's theology on this very important topic to us. And we're going to do this based, as I said, on some of the things that he wrote in the sixth chapter of his letter to the churches in Galatia. The reason I say that this topic is so important to us is manyfold, really, but two come to mind right away. First of all, we're living in a very interesting time in human history, aren't, aren't we? We are more connected to one another and to the world around us than at any other point in human history, and yet many studies are now beginning to suggest that at the very same time, we're the most isolated and the most lonely and the most in need of real connection and real a community than perhaps we've ever been. It's ironic, really. We've never been more connected, and yet we've never been more alone. We need genuine relationships in our lives. Now, the second reason I say this topic is so important to us is that uh, as a newly forming community of faith here known as the Hallows Church, you see the relationships that we're forming and forging among one another and with, uh, with the surrounding community, these relationships in every way are going to lay a foundation for us as a young church. The relationships that you and I are forming with one another are in a very real way going to set the trajectory for this church. And so I want to be very thoughtful and very intentional about this. I want to make certain that we're thinking rightly about what it means to be uh, in community with one another in the family of God and, and as the family of God. And in Galatians chapter 6, Paul has some very practical guidance for us in this regard. He gives us, in fact, a glimpse uh, in many ways of what gospel-saturated relationships should look like. Let me read this passage for us, and then we'll go from there. Galatians chapter 6. Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught... In any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor." For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. 
but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and, to us, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so what I'd like to draw out of this passage together today are four marks, four features, four characteristics of the types of gospel-saturated relationships that should uh, characterize us as a community of faith. And the first mark that we'll talk about, you can see in verse 2, where Paul says that you and I, as a, as a gospel community, we're to, we're to bear one another's burdens. We're to help the burdened humbly. Now, straight away, Paul is telling us two things here when he says this. First, he's telling us that uh, you and I, we will have burdens in this life. We will all have burdens. And I do not think that will come as a big surprise to, to any of you, really. But he's also telling us here that God does not intend for us to carry our burdens alone. God intends for us, in fact, to lean upon one another, to, to press into one another. We're to bear one another's burdens together, Paul says. Now think about this. If you see a friend struggling along with a very uh, big and very heavy weight upon their back, how do you help that person out? The most obvious way that you help that person out is you have to get very close to them. You have to get uh, right up alongside them. You very nearly have to get in that person's shoes in order to help them, don't you? Because the only way you can truly help to bear the weight that they're carrying is if you're willing to position yourself in such a way to allow some of that weight that they're carrying to actually shift onto you. You take, you take on some of that weight for them, but in order to do that, you have to be right alongside that person. Now, at some level, I think we all know something about this. If you have a friend who has an emotional burden that is overwhelming them in their life, weighing them down, and you spend time with that person, listening to them, understanding them, consoling them, even crying with them, Often they feel better after this, don't they? They feel affirmed, they feel uh, understood, they feel less alone. But here's the thing, when you do this sort of thing, when you're willing to be there for another person in this sort of way, how do you feel after this? Now on the one hand, I will say that it can be quite, quite rewarding at times to be able to be there for someone like this. You know you're helping them and at times you can see that it's making a difference. But the truth is, after you do this for someone, you can often yourself feel quite drained. Often you come out of this sort of interaction feeling emotionally and, and psychologically spent. You become drained while they're being built up and encouraged. And the reason for that is some of the heaviness of their struggle and some of the heaviness of their uh, suffering is actually sliding onto you. You're helping to bear their burden and it's, it's costing you something. You're losing some of your own emotional resources because of the investment that you're making in this other person. In a way, you're standing in their place as a substitute for them as you take upon yourself some of the, some of the heaviness that is weighing that person down. And the truth is, if we're going to be honest here, that's exactly why so many of us are, are often so reluctant to, to even do this sort of thing. That's why many of us will steer quite clear of putting ourselves in those sorts of situations because of the cost that we know will be involved. You see, our natural tendency as fallen and selfish people living in a fallen and sinful world is to look to the relationships around us based not on what we can get 
from them, but what we can give to them. And so many of us will say, I don't have the time to help. I don't have the energy to help. I don't have the money to help. But most of the time, if we're going to be honest, what's really being said is not so much that I'm unable to help in those ways. What's, what's really being said is I'm unable to help in those ways without disturbing my own schedule. I'm unable to help like that without disrupting and disturbing my own rhythms and my own routines and my own resources. But I think what Paul is saying here is that that's the whole point, isn't it? If you and I are only willing to help relieve the burdens of others when we can do it without burdening ourselves, are we, are we really bearing any burdens at all? If it's not costing you anything at all, are you really bearing any of the weight that is pressing that person down? Or are you keeping that person at such a distance that none of their burden is ever actually allowed to fall on you? Paul is reminding us here that God ordinarily brings comfort to his people through his people as we bear one another's burdens in meaningful ways. But this requires at times that we're willing to, to inconvenience ourselves, to put ourselves out there, to step into some, some dark and messy places at times, and to see the relationships around us as opportunities to give rather than as opportunities to get. God at times comforts his people through his people. But at other times, as we step into gospel community today, what, or together, what, we, what will be needed for some is not so much comfort as correction. And Paul shows us here that another mark of gospel-saturated relationships is that we're willing to, to help those who are struggling or, or stumbling in their walk with Jesus. Paul says in verse 1, if anyone is caught in any transgression, if anyone is stuck in sin, you who are spiritual should restore him and should do so in a spirit of gentleness. Now, when Paul says caught in any transgression, he is not talking about a one-time thing here. He's not talking necessarily about someone uh, being caught in the act and, and taken to task for it. What he's really talking about here is based, uh, based on the language that he's using is really a pattern of behavior. He's talking about a situation in which a person is caught or stuck in a destructive way of thinking or a destructive way of living. And we see here in this passage that there comes a point for us as a family of faith where we cannot simply ignore the situation when someone seems to be going off the rails. We indeed want to be a people who extend grace generously towards one another. We do know that love covers a multitude of sins, but we also want to be a people who take sin seriously and who are willing when and where necessary to speak the truth in love to one another, even when that truth may be uncomfortable or may be awkward. And Paul says, if and when it reaches that point, our aim must be to restore that person who is struggling and to do so gently, he says, and to do so humbly, he also says, keeping watch on ourselves as well, as he says in verse 1, as we do this. And as is often the case, Paul uses some very interesting language and imagery here. The Greek word translated as restore in verse 1, where Paul says uh, we're to restore those caught in transgression, it's a very interesting word. It's one, in one of its most common usages, this word translated as restore is very often used as a medical term. It's used as a medical term, get this, for putting a dislocated bone back into its socket. Or, put it, or, or, or resetting a, a broken bone that, that has, uh, has, has snapped in two. 
You see, sometimes the only way to get a person out of the pain of a broken or dislocated bone is the greater pain of putting that bone back where it belongs so that it can begin to heal and so that it can begin again to function according to its intended purpose and its intended design. Now, I've actually experienced this. This can be quite painful. You see, as a as a young boy, I was playing football on the schoolyard one day with some other kids, and I was a pretty small kid relative to my friends, and, and I got hit pretty hard one day and knocked to the ground. I knew something was wrong straight away. I kind of got up and slithered, slithered, slithered away without uh, anyone really knowing that anything had happened, but I went home. My mom took me to the hospital. We had x-rays, and it turns out that this big, this big bone called the clavicle bone, it snapped in two. It's not only snapped into it, it broke, and then it kind of went over on top of itself like that. And so the doctor said, Jeff, this is, this is not going to feel good. But what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to take your shoulders and pull them apart. I mean, you're going to need to pull your shoulders apart to get that bone to set back where it belongs. And I remember that this hurt a great deal. But the truth is the pain of putting that bone back into its proper position was necessary in order, to, in order for me to get back to normal. It was the only way that bone and my body could be repaired and restored appropriately. And so this restoration that Paul is talking about here, it needs to be approached gently, as he says, but, but that does not mean it will not always, that does not mean it will be easy. There may be pain, there may be tears, but it's a, it's a healing pain, it's a restorative kind of pain. And Paul is saying that within a gospel-saturated community, we need to be uh, willing at times to restore one another in these kinds of ways. And another thing about this, think about the imagery that Paul is using here with this word restore. Paul is actually saying something very interesting about sin here. What Paul seems to be saying is that sin is not so much something coming in from the outside. It's not like a a splinter or a bullet or something foreign to us that was not already there. Rather, Paul seems to be suggesting that sin is something internal, something within us, something that's a part of us, like a bone that's, that's broken or out of place. And so interestingly, what this seems to be suggesting, and rightly so, I believe, is that, is that often our biggest struggles with sin are not necessarily just bad things that we should stop doing, things we should take out of our lives entirely that never belong there in the first place? No, the main problem, more often than not, is that good and natural things that, that should be in our lives and that in, in some cases are needed in our lives, they, they get out of place. They take on more importance than they should. They get out of order. They become dislocated. Think about it. Things like education and family and career things like acceptance and approval, things like influence and popularity, things like sex and success. These are not inherently bad things. Most of these things, in fact, are good at many levels that we, uh, that we want and that we need in our lives. Many of these things should be in our lives, but they get very subtly and very seriously out of place, out of order, often without us even realizing it. They get dislocated and they need to be reset and restored to their proper place and their proper priority in our lives. And Paul says this is what we do in the context of gospel community and in the context of our gospel relationships. We look out for one another. We restore one another. We help to realign and reorient one another to the truth of the gospel 
when one among us finds themselves struggling or stumbling in their walk with Jesus. Now, in verses 6 to 8, Paul gives us another mark, another characteristic of a gospel community, and that is sowing in the Spirit intentionally. Now, in these verses, Paul uses one of the most familiar experiences of, uh, of, of the history of humankind, the agricultural process of sowing and reaping, of planting seeds and tending to those seeds, and eventually enjoying the benefit of a harvest from those seeds that were planted. In farming or in gardening, this is an absolute principle. And in verse 7, Paul applies that principle to us and to our lives. There he says, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. In other words, you don't plant seeds of one type in your life and expect to reap a harvest of another. If you plant corn, you will not get apples no matter how much you want apples, no matter how much you like apples, because that's not what you planted. Paul is taking this absolute principle of sowing and reaping that applies in the physical realm, in the agricultural realm, and he's applying it to the spiritual realm as well and to our Christian lives. And look at what he says about this in verse 8. In verse 8, Paul tells us that uh, the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Paul is saying that there are two fields or two spheres in our lives where sowing is taking place. And he says, you and I are sowing seeds on a regular basis as Christians in one of those two fields. We're sowing seeds either to the flesh or to the Spirit. Now, earlier in this letter to the Galatians, in chapter 5, Paul makes clear that the flesh and the spirit are in opposition to one another. He said there that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They're in conflict with one another, so there's this inner conflict within us. And Paul means something quite specific here when he speaks about the flesh. You see, he's referring to our inner fallen nature, to our inner sinful tendencies that remain in each and every one of us because of what went down in Genesis chapter 3. And Paul says there in the, uh, chapter 5 of the book of Galatians that from the flesh flow various sinful passions and desires that can very easily break out in a person's life in all sorts of destructive ways. One way to think about the flesh is that uh, it's the part of us really that wants to be in control it's the part of us that thinks we know best. It's the part that wants to believe that our identities are based on what people say about us rather than what the gospel says about us. And it's also the part that tries to tell us at times that God's love for us is based upon the things that we do rather than on the things that Jesus has, has already done. This is the flesh, and it's in opposition to the Spirit at every turn and in every way. And I think that sowing to the flesh, as Paul says, is really, it's really to, to pander to the flesh, to coddle it, to, to entertain its desires, rather than to cautiously consider and to crucify those desires. John Stott said this about sowing to the flesh. He says, every time that we allow our minds to harbor a grudge, 
Every time we nurse a grievance, every time we entertain an impure fantasy, every time we wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. He says, every time we linger in bad company whose influence we know we cannot resist, every time we view content we should not be viewing, every time we take a risk which we know will strain our self-control, John Stott says we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Two fields, the flesh and the spirit. We're always sowing seeds to one or to the other. We're always sowing seeds, sometimes small seeds, sometimes big seeds. But one thing Paul makes clear here is that those seeds will eventually give rise to a harvest. There will be a return. And Paul says in verse 8 that sowing to the flesh will ultimately give rise to a, a harvest that you do not want. Paul says that when we sow to the flesh, we, we reap corruption. And this word corruption can also be translated as disintegration. And so Paul seems to be saying here that if you're not paying close attention, if you're planting in the wrong field, if you're sowing to the flesh carelessly, it will eventually cause things to come apart and to come undone in your life, slowly and subtly, but, but somewhat predictably. Some Christians sow to the flesh day in and day out and wonder why they struggle in their walk with Jesus. They wonder why they don't seem to be growing. They wonder why they don't seem to experience the intimacy they once had with uh, Jesus and that others seem to have. Indeed, Paul says many Christians are deceived about this in verse 7. He says, many will sow seeds of one type, expecting to reap a harvest of another. But Paul says, do not kid yourself in verse 7. He says, God is not mocked. It's only a matter of time before those seeds will produce a corresponding harvest of disintegration and destruction in your life as you continue sowing to the flesh. And so if that's sowing to the flesh, what then does it mean for us to be sowing instead to the Spirit? Paul gives us some parallels, I think, elsewhere in his writings where he talks about setting our minds on the Spirit in Romans chapter 8, where he tells us to live and be led by the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, where he says to set our minds on the things that are above, not the things that are of this earth in Colossians chapter 3. He also tells us in Galatians chapter 5 about the fruit of the Spirit, that should be blooming and blossoming in our lives as Christians over time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But fundamentally, sowing to the Spirit, setting our minds on the Spirit, living uh, by the Spirit, means that you and I are believing the gospel more and more deeply, and we're living our lives in light of that belief. Indeed, one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate the truth and the beauty and the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our hearts and in our minds. And so at some level, you and I are uh, sowing to the Spirit when you and I are trusting Jesus with our lives, with our families, and with our futures, and acting in accordance with that trust. And so sowing to the Spirit can take many different forms to be sure as we walk with Jesus and as we, as we seek to honor Him with our lives. And so by the books that we read, by the company that we keep, by the leisure activities that we engage in, we can be sowing to the Spirit by fostering humble habits of devotion 
and prayer, both individually and corporately, we can be sowing to the Spirit. By bearing burdens humbly and restoring the broken gently, we can be sowing to the Spirit. By considering others more significant than ourselves, by loving our neighbors well, we can be sowing to the Spirit. And Paul says the harvest for sowing to the Spirit is not corruption or disintegration, but, but fullness and life and joy. Then in verses 9, to 9 and 10, Paul reminds us of another way that we can be sowing in the Spirit intentionally, and that is by doing good to everyone as we have the opportunity, and also by not becoming weary in doing that good. And he, he reminds us, I think, not to grow weary because we know uh, this is not always easy. At times, life can be quite exhausting. We grow weary at times. We grow frustrated and discouraged at times. Because after all, there's ordinarily quite a long delay between the sowing of seeds and between the reaping of a harvest. New gardeners know all about this. New gardeners often experience a lot of anxiety uh, watching over the dormant seeds that they've planted for days or for weeks or for even months, wondering if they'll ever see any real and visible results from the seeds that they planted. And just as inexperienced gardeners might give up watering and weeding their own gardens as they grow discouraged over the slowness of the process, Christians can, in a similar way, fail to persevere in their service and in their ministry. And Paul would say that a lack of follow-through in these things can stunt the harvest in our spiritual lives, just as it does in the physical realm. Paul is encouraging us here as Christians not to lose heart, not to grow weary, not to give up. Life can be exhausting at times, but God gave us one another to bear one another's burdens and to encourage one another and to build one another up at every step of the way. Two different fields, the flesh and the spirit. We are inevitably sowing seed in one or in the other. Two different fields and two different harvests. So I'd like to ask you this morning, how is that going? What kind of harvest are you reaping in your own spiritual life today? Is it one of disintegration and decay? Or is it one of wholeness and life? Our hope is that as a people we can walk these things out together, the good, the bad, and, and everything in between. Finally, the fourth and final mark, and this is perhaps the most important mark of all, a mark that I hope and pray will characterize us as a newly forming community of faith, because so much of the Christian life hinges upon this, I believe. You see, we will never be able to bear one another's burdens. We will never restore the broken gently. We will never sow to the Spirit on any consistent basis unless you and I are seeing ourselves and seeing our condition rightly. And so the last mark and the most important mark in my mind of our gospel relationships and our gospel, gospel uh, community is that you and I see and understand ourselves humbly and accurately and honestly in light of the gospel. Friends, Christianity gives us a way of looking at ourselves that is utterly uh, unique and utterly different than any and every other worldview. There is a unique paradox, in fact, to the Christian identity that is often missed or misunderstood. And Paul gives us, I think, a very fascinating glimpse of it here as we look at what he says in verses 3 and 4. Paul says in verse 3, if you think you're something, 
if you think you're significant, if you think you're a big deal, he says you're not. He says you're deceived. But then in verse 4, he says to boast in yourself, to, to test yourself, to be proud of yourself in a sense. And so what is going on here? Paul is essentially saying here that there's something you and I need to come to grips with before any of these things will work themselves out in our lives. He says you need to be honest about yourself, you need to be honest to yourself, and you need to see yourself as you truly are, not from a worldly perspective or from a fleshly perspective, but, but from a gospel perspective. And what Paul says here at first glance, it seems pretty harsh. He says you're nothing. He says I'm nothing. He says we're all nothing. And he says if you think that's some sort of exaggeration, if you think that I'm, surely I'm not nothing, surely I'm not all that bad, he says you're deceived. Paul has a lot to say about this, actually. In fact, his life is a, is a case study for exactly what I'm talking about here. Let me show you how Paul sees himself. Let me show you how bad and broken Paul is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, For I am the least of all the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. The least of the apostles, he says. Didn't this guy write most of the New Testament? And it gets worse. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I am the least of all the saints. I am the least of all the apostles, he says, and I am the least of all the saints. Then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he says that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the worst of them all, he says. And so what do we do with that? It seems like Paul is uh, losing it a bit here. It seems like he's surely exaggerating here. To many modern ears, it sounds like Paul is being a bit pathological here. In today's culture of affirming everybody's self-esteem and self-importance, whether it's warranted or not, Paul seems just plain harsh here. But he never wavers on this point. Paul says the problem is very real. And he says the problem is not out there. The problem, the problem is in here. Some of us see it, some of us don't see it, some of us don't want to see it. In a 2014 interview with uh, Vanity Fair magazine, the actor Bill Murray was reflecting on his life. And at one point during the interview, he was reflecting on what stops him from looking deeper into his own issues. And he said this, he said, what stops any of us from looking deeper is that, is that if we're willing to look really, really hard, we are truly ugly on the inside. We're not who we think we are. We're not as wonderful as we think we are. And when we see that and when we, when we realize that, it's a shock, he says, and it can be hard to deal with. And friends, one of the biggest reasons the world is the way that it is, I think, is because most of us are afraid to look honestly at ourselves and at the depravity of our hearts and to acknowledge and to admit what we see. Because you see, our nothingness and our brokenness and our insignificance can be very hard to admit. For many people, this is their biggest fear. If you admit this, then what are you left with? You're left to face the despair of, of being nothing and of, of trying to cope with the crushing weight of knowing that you're nothing. For most people, they live their lives trying to hide their nothingness and their brokenness from others and even from themselves. They tell themselves they're something, and they hold up to the world various reasons why they should be viewed as something. 
And so they work really hard. They work out really hard. They search. They strive. They perform. They achieve. And they end up spending much of their lives doing all sorts of things to overcome the fear and the fact that they're nothing and that their life is small and fleeting. Now, I realize that all this negativity, all this talk of nothingness can sound quite depressing and and some would say even damaging to many in our culture. These types of statements in the Bible coming from Paul, they sound uh, quite harsh. They, They don't seem very affirming. They seem, in fact, like they could be somewhat psychologically damaging. Many would say this type of thinking will surely destroy self-confidence. It will certainly hurt people's self-esteem. And that might be true if, if Paul was done. If that was the end of the story, that might be true. If all this negativity was the end of the story, then there might indeed be cause for concern. But Paul does not stop there. Paul never stops there, in fact. When we look at the life of Paul, we see an intriguing situation. We see a very fascinating and very instructive balance to this guy's life. Paul knew that he was nothing, and he acknowledged that he was nothing. Yet we most definitely do not see in Paul a man who had low self-esteem. We don't see a man who struggled with confidence. In fact, Paul was arguably one of the most bold and influential leaders in the history of the human race. And get this, even though Paul said again and again that he was nothing, that he was broken, that he was unworthy, do you, do you know what else he said? He also said, watch me. He said, be like me. He also said, imitate me. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, I urge you to be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And so why would Paul say that? He says repeatedly, I'm nothing, I'm broken, I'm the chief of sinners, and yet he also says, be just like me. At first glance, it doesn't seem to make sense, just like verses 3 and 4 in this passage do not seem to to make sense at first glance. It's there that Paul says, on the one hand, you're nothing, but in the same breath, he's saying there's a sense in which you have reason to boast. You have reason to be proud. And so what is going on here? Paul's view of himself and his nothingness did not derail his mission or his ministry. In fact, in a fascinating way, having a clear and accurate view of himself and his nothingness helped drive Paul's life and his ministry. And I think Paul would say that it can do the very same with with you and I. Paul could admit that he was nothing. He could believe that he was nothing. He could know that he was nothing without that belief slowing him down or or getting him down at all. My friends, apart from the gospel, we would all struggle to muster up the honesty and the strength to admit the very worst about ourselves. But only the gospel gives us the unique resources to face this human condition, to face our own nothingness honestly and and realistically without it slowing us down or getting us down either. Because you see, in the gospel and because of the gospel, It's okay to finally admit these things. We're free to be honest about our nothingness because because here's the thing and here's the point. Our nothingness is only part of the story. It's only one part of our story as Christians and it's not the good part of the story. The good part of the story, in fact, the staggering part of the story is that even though in ourselves we're nothing, 
even though in ourselves we're nothing before God because of our rebellion against Him, nevertheless, in the gospel and in Jesus, you and I are indeed something to God. And so how can that be? The Bible tells us quite clearly that Jesus is the point and the purpose of reality as we know it. It tells us quite clearly that He's the eternal creator and sustainer and redeemer and restorer of all things. He had everything. He was and is everything. And yet when he did not have to, Philippians chapter 2 says that Jesus emptied himself. He gave it up. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28 says he gave up his life as a ransom for you and I. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says Jesus became our sin in order that you and I by faith might be made right with our God. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says that Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You see, this Jesus who was and is everything, he became nothing so that you and I, in spite of being nothing, could become something. This is how, as a Christian, you can be nothing and you can boast at the same time. You can finally be honest about your nothingness because you know that it's only part of the story. You know that even though you're nothing before God on your own, you're everything to God because of Jesus as you put your trust in who he is and in what he's done. And so this is the unique paradox of the Christian worldview. And it offers you and I some incredibly valuable resources to face this human condition and to face the world that is as we await the world to come. You see, this whole dynamic of being nothing on our own, but being everything to God in the gospel, it changes us, it affects us, it makes us a humble people to be sure. But at the very same time, it makes us a bold people as well. If you know you're really nothing, and if you know you're a sinner saved only by grace, that affects you. It should humble you. It humbles you, in fact, out of the pride and the self-righteousness that causes you to, to look down on other people because you realize the gospel has leveled the playing field in a very universal sense. No one is deserving. It's all by God's grace. But if you know at the very same time that you're everything to God, in fact, if you know that he loves you as he loves Jesus, John chapter 17, that truth, that reality in every way affirms you. It affirms you out of the despair of, of being nothing. You see, it's only in the gospel that you can be nothing and you can be everything at the very same time. Do you see that? Are these dynamics at work in your own heart and in your own life today? Are you seeing yourself and your condition clearly? As we do, we will become a people who are humble and who are helpful and who are bold. Now, there's one last thing I want, to see, want us to see here as we wrap things up this morning and as we think about this passage together. In a very real way, as Paul shows us what it looks like to be in gospel-saturated relationships, we actually get a very interesting and a very beautiful glimpse of Jesus himself. We get a glimpse of Jesus doing for us in his life and through his ministry, the very same things Paul now says in this passage that you and I should be doing for one another in our lives and in our relationships. Think about this. When you and I were caught in our transgressions helplessly, which we were, 
When you and I were hopelessly stuck and dead in our own sin, Jesus, he came for us, he came to us, and he did so to restore us, to restore us gently to the Father by faith, through grace, not by our striving or by our suffering, but by his. And when we were burdened by our sin and our nothingness and our separation from God, Jesus became the ultimate burden bearer for us. He became one of us so that he could understand us and so that he could stand under us. He got right in our shoes. He came right alongside us so that he could take on the full weight, the the cosmic weight of our sin and our rebellion against our Creator. This Jesus, He became nothing so that you and I could become something. He willingly became nothing so that in the Father's eyes, you and I could become everything. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for uh, this time together. Father, would you make us a people who are willing to restore the broken gently and to to bear burdens humbly and to sow seeds intentionally to the Spirit just as Jesus and his gospel did these same things for us. Jesus, we thank you that you made a way. We thank you that when you were nothing, when we were nothing, you did not abandon us. Thank you that in a very real sense, you sacrificed your own community with the Father and with the Spirit so that we could become a community with you and with one another as family. Thank you, Jesus, that you became nothing so that we could become something. It's in, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.